My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Rosa Jimenez. A woman convicted of murdering a one-year-old boy years ago. On January 30th, 2003, 20-year-old Rosa Jimenez was babysitting her neighbor's 21-month-old child when the unthinkable happened. In 2003, Jimenez was babysitting a 21-month-old when the baby choked on a wad of paper towels. Rosa says it was an accident that the young boy had put the wad inside his own mouth. But prosecutors say there is no way the child could have done that himself. The wad must have been forced down his throat, they argued. Rosa was convicted of murder and sentenced to 99 years in prison. But today, leading experts say it was an accident and five judges have agreed that Rosa is likely innocent. Rosa Jimenez, then a young mother and a babysitter, did not get a fair trial in Travis County back in 2005. Yet she's been in prison for 17 years, dying of stage four kidney disease. So why is Rosa still in prison? And will she get out in time to live her last days as a free woman? We'll get to that after this. Rosa was one of the first women I spoke with, and it was a whole different experience. We talked on a level that was different than speaking with the men, and not better, just different, like talking with one of my girlfriends. Even her first letter to me was filled with smiley faces, and she wrote big, big hugs with lots of love. It's not exactly the type of letter you'd expect to come from someone in prison for murder. I was actually scheduled to meet with Rosa in person, but because of COVID-19, all prisons are on lockdown, but she called me the day we were supposed to meet. So how old are you? I'm 31. Oh, you're so young. <laughs> you're young too. You're How old are you? Like late 30s? Yes, you're right, late. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You were so young when all this happened. I know. Oh, my mm. life wasted. Rosa wrote in her first letter to me, quote, I want to go home so bad. This 17 years has been so long for me. Rosa grew up in Mexico, right outside of Mexico City, in a poor family with eight kids, raised by her mom, who ran a tamale stand to support them all. But that just wasn't enough for them. Rosa was going to school for business administration, but told me that one day when she came home, everything changed. One day I came back from college and she was, the refrigerator was empty. And I was hungry, so... My mom see me and she was like, are you hungry? So I lied to her and I tell her no, that I, 
I was just thirsty that I was going to get ice. But, you know, that's, a, that's the reason that I came over here to help my mom. At 17, Rosa dropped out of college and decided to come to the U.S. and make money to send back to her family. She illegally crossed the border like so many people looking for a better life do, and she settled in Austin, Texas. Shortly after she arrived, Rosa was married with a one-year-old daughter and pregnant with a boy. She didn't speak any English, but she found a community of people and was able to get work babysitting, and she says she was happy. By January 2003, 20-year-old Rosa had a steady gig babysitting a friend's child a couple times a week. Brian Gutierrez was almost two years old, and Rosa had been babysitting him for seven months. Everyone who knew Rosa and Brian said that Brian loved her. Rosa's daughter, Brenda, was around the same age as Brian, and Rosa said she loved Brian like her own. Character witnesses for Rosa at trial said they had never seen her angry or lose her temper. Do you know a lady named Rosa how many children did, was she caring for for you? She cared for two of my children, and she was one of my primates. Okay. You've known her already for a while. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen her lose her temper and just go off on anybody? <laughs> I never saw her mad. You saw how she treated Brian? Yes. And you saw how Brian reacted to her? Brian was, was too pleased with her that whenever he saw her coming, he would open his arms. And, and he wanted to hug her. I know that because I, I can't remember that. Uh, did she ever take any care of any children for you? Yes. On January 30th, 2003, Brian's mom dropped him off with Rosa on her way to work at 9 a.m. I mean, it was just a normal day to you. Yes. Yes, I woke up today and... After the drop-off, the kids napped and woke up around 11. Rosa says she gave them a snack of cereal and left them watching TV in bed while she finished doing chores. Rosa says a little while later, Brian came to her and said he was hungry. So she went to the kitchen to make some pico de gallo, beans, eggs, and cheese. Rosa says that both kids had colds that day and she was constantly blowing their nose. And so when Brian came to her, she grabbed the paper towels and blew his nose, thinking nothing of the fact that she threw the roll on the couch after she tore a paper towel off of it. She says a few minutes later, Brian and Brenda came in with shreds of paper towels, throwing them around the kitchen. She told them not to do that, and they ran away, back to the toys in the bedroom. Every few minutes, she would look out of the kitchen and check in on them. She told the police, at most, there was a 10-minute window where she had her back turned. And then suddenly, Brian came in the kitchen, apparently choking. I mean, do you remember the moment that you saw them and, and kind of, you know, went into this, like, panic mode of, like, what was happening? I don't think I'm supposed to talk about that. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. 
In many cases, I've come across this, where the accused is advised by their lawyer not to talk about case specifics if they have pending litigation. That's fairly standard practice, especially when dealing with a defendant for whom English is a second language. Lawyers know that if a client misspeaks or forgets important context, what they say might end up being used by prosecutors to keep them locked up. That's why when you interview someone in person, the lawyer usually tags along, but by phone, Prisons are not big on three-way calls. It's actually pretty hard to do. So I spoke to Rosa's lawyer, Vanessa Potkin, the director of post-conviction litigation at the Innocence Project, about the case specifics. At some point, Brian comes into the into the kitchen and he's grasping at his neck. Um, and so he um, is clutching at his neck and it's clear that he can't breathe. And her own daughter had, you know, choked some time before so she kind of knew how to respond and she tried to respond and like do a, a you know like a mouth sweep and he bit down on her finger she didn't have a phone at the time so she took brian you know frantically you know next door to a neighbor that had a phone that neighbor called 911 brian's still breathing at the time the first responder is a police officer who had never done cpr before then ems arrives who tries CPR and finally realizes there's a blockage. Then realizes that there's a blockage and they are able, you know, they use forceps and they remove what turns out to be some ball of wadded up paper towels. Bloody wadded up paper towels were removed from Brian's throat. Vanessa says that everyone on scene came upon it thinking it was an accident, a child choking on something he put in his own mouth. But when the bloody paper towels came out and they saw the size of it, everything changed. So, so about that, how big was it? So it was, well, this is the problem, is that nobody documented how big it was when it came out because, you know, as you know, like paper towels are going to be different sizes when they dry out versus like wet and being compacted. So nobody documented what it looked like when it came out. The only time it was documented was a couple hours later when it had dried out at the hospital. When the paper towels came out, they were wet and clumped up, but they expanded when they dried out. But only the expanded paper towels were documented, which does not give a true picture of what actually happened. Nobody really knows what it looks like at the time. It is five paper towels that are wadded up. One of the lawyers that I'm working with basically just like, you know, found her grandma's picnic basket and it had paper towels in it and it's from like 15 years ago and the size of the paper towels are quite different from like a roll today. So it's hard to just like take a paper towel and like wad it up and think like, what would that look like? From the picture, I can see the dried wad is about two to two and a half inches in height. It's an oblong shape, but if I had to pick an object it looks like, I'd say it's about the size of a racquetball or a rubber handball. And that's really what sealed Rosa's fate. Experts at her trial said there was no way Brian could have put that down his throat himself. They said Rosa had held him down and shoved it down his throat asphyxiating him after losing her temper when he and Brenda were throwing the pieces of paper around. This is the prosecutor in Rosa's case, Assistant District Attorney Allison Wetzel. She's known to be tough and a veteran of the DA's Child Abuse Division. At trial, she speaks about Brian in a very emotionally charged statement. He'd be starting kindergarten next fall. And all the dreams that 
Victoria has for him are gone. He never got to go to school, tie his shoes, learn to read, ride a bike, play t-ball, be in Cub Scouts, write a letter to Santa Claus, go camping. dive off a diving board, drive a car, fall in love, all the things that we want for our children. And all those things were taken away from him because of the defendant. This was such a selfish crime. She killed him out of anger. Brian died a few months later in hospice. 20-year-old pregnant Rosa was arrested, tried, and convicted of homicide. Cases involving children are often super emotional, as you just heard the prosecutor's statement, leading the jury to emotional decisions. According to the Innocence Project, most female exonerees were convicted of crimes that turned out to not have been crimes at all, like accidents, and almost one-third of them involve a child. For example, shaken baby syndrome. I'm sure you've heard of it, but it's severe child abuse that causes brain damage. Experts now say this may have been overdiagnosed with other causes like sickle cell anemia, causing symptoms that could look like abusive head trauma, leading to wrongful convictions. Rosa spent two years in jail awaiting trial before being transferred to a maximum security prison. So your son was born inside the prison? Yes, in jail. Yeah, when I was in jail. Um, and what was that like? You just have to have your kid and they take him away, because, especially because of my current. So they, they were uh, afraid that I might hurt my, my kid. Did you even get to hold? I mean, was it almost immediate they took, they took him away? I got to hold him probably like 30 minutes, and that was because a, a nurse was there, and she was Hispanic, and, and she was like, she knew I was in jail, and she was like, you're probably not going to see your kids, so I'm going to let you have it right now while the doctors are busy, so she let me hold him for like 30 minutes. Rosa's kids eventually wound up being raised by foster parents. You know, like, that, that's their parents, that's their, all they... They know, even my daughter, when she refers to them, she always says mom and dad, you know? Yeah. Does she call you mom ever? Yeah, she calls me mom, but, you know, one time she was like, I can tell she was trying to, like, hold on, like, saying Valerie and Mark, you know, and trying to be careful not to call them mom and dad. So do your kids visit with you? Do you have a relationship with them? They were so young, and then um, they like, um, we never have contact visits um, because of my crime, so I couldn't never have a contact visit with them. Um, they used to come to visit me, but it was through a glass, and it was two hours, and some, it was like every other month, or sometimes like every three months. So, you know, it would, we never have a relationship, really. Because the crime she was convicted of was against a child, Rosa was never allowed to touch her children until this year. My daughter turned 18 years old in um, January, and she um, she came to visit me, and it was her first contact visit. 
Oh. After 17 years. Because she wasn't a child anymore. Yes. Wow. Wow. What was that like? To be honest, wish I can tell everybody that it was so nice. You know, it was it was good, but it was like it was, it was we were two strangers. We were just trying to get to know each other. It's like me and you right now talking because we don't know each other. You know what I'm saying? Both of her kids are like strangers to her, but especially her son, who was whisked away right after birth. He refuses to take her phone calls or read her letters. He don't want to. He don't want to talk to me. He don't want to read my letters. He don't want to do nothing. He said, I don't know you. You don't know me. Um, I don't love you. You know, I don't know nothing about you. So how do you want me to like start a relationship with you when I don't know nothing about you? And Rosa says he's also been in and out of trouble with the law. He don't know how to express his feelings, especially because I'm here. And so I believe, like, they have so much anger, so much, you know, like, depression, and they don't know how to express it. So they, I guess, they do other things to get attention. I don't know. How have you been feeling, you know, spiritually and mentally about the position you're in? You know, when this happened, like... So this day, I don't know why that happened. You know, like, you people always say, God has a reason for everything he does. Mm-hmm. I still don't know why. But we do know how her conviction happened. We'll get to that after this. At trial, the prosecution presented multiple experts and witnesses, doctors and first responders, all saying there was no way a child could have shoved that many paper towels down their own throat. They were forced into the throat. Uh, I concur with Dr. Perringal that this is a homicide. He had paper towels forced down his airway. He didn't do it himself. But the fact that I've never seen it keeps me from sleeping at night. One of the key witnesses to take the stand was Officer Eric De Los Santos, who interviewed Rosa the day of the incident. Again, Rosa was new to the U.S. and didn't speak English, so the interview is in Spanish, but I'll tell you what's happening. Officer De Los Santos is asking her if the children throwing the paper pieces made her mad. She shakes her head, no, and she says they were just little pieces of paper. Then he asks if she put the paper towels in his mouth. Again, she repeatedly says no. Then... He tells her that her daughter is being taken by Child Protective Services while the investigation is going on. Desperate to see her daughter, Rosa asks if she can see Brenda. And if so, she'll tell Detective De Los Santos what happened. Maybe I can have Brenda back if I just say whatever they want me to say. At that point, I was, like, desperate because... They took Brenda, and I want Brenda back, and I was in a desperate moment where, okay, well, whatever you want me to say, I will say it. If you say, if you want me to say whatever you've been saying, then I say it, you know, but just let me have Brenda back. So they allow her to see Brenda for only a few minutes, but she can't hold her. This is the moment that they take Brenda away. She asks, 
they're taking her away already, and then begins to cry. After this visit, Rosa never tells them what happened as they want to hear, that she did it. But the prosecution used this tape against her to say she knew she was guilty and manipulating the situation. This is Rosa's lawyer asking Officer De Los Santos on the witness stand about the interview he did with Rosa. You have a desperate mother wanting to see your daughter. That's what you have, don't you? Uh, She was desperate to see her daughter, yes, sir. And you gave her that promise and said, if you tell me how this happened, you get to go home and you get to see your daughter. Several times in that interview, I see it and it's here. I know you say that. Several times I've seen that. She's going to get to see her child and she's going to get to go home. That's correct. And yet, she wasn't able to tell you. Was she? Or or in your your opinion, she didn't want to tell you. That's correct. Did it ever occur to you that it might be that she couldn't tell you? She couldn't or wouldn't? Couldn't tell me? Right. Oh, because she didn't know? Exactly. Sure, that's a possibility. Now, there are some serious issues with this interview. In two parts. One, Rosa just came from Mexico. She doesn't speak English and doesn't know her rights. Two, She isn't under arrest, so she was not even read Miranda rights, telling her she has the rights to a lawyer. So Rosa didn't know she could ask for one. So she tried to handle the situation on her own. This is one of Rosa's trial attorneys in a documentary later made about her case, which we'll get to. I think that if this would have happened to somebody in West Austin, you know, middle, upper class, educated person, that that person probably would not have ended up in the same situation as Rosa. I think it was very easy for them because she's Mexican, she's poor, she's illegal. Um, you know, she didn't know her rights. I mean, like in the interview, you know, after if, if that would have happened to me after the second time, this guy would have told me that, you know, I did it. I probably would have used some very ugly words and I would have asked him how many times do I need to tell you that I didn't do it. I can't tell you anything else and I want a lawyer now. And I think any, anybody who had known the system better, had more money, more resources, would have been able to put up a much better fight. Rosa also believes prosecutor Allison Wetzel had it out for her personally. I don't know. I don't know. You know, like, I don't know. When I, when I was in her trial, it, it was like she hated me. Like, you can see it in her eyes. And it's hard to argue this. You can hear it in Wetzel's question to Officer De Los Santos at trial in this now infamous clip. And despite being um, from Mexico, she's very intelligent. Wouldn't you agree? I, I think she's a smart lady, yes. Yes, ma'am. Despite being from Mexico, she's very intelligent. I'll let you sit on that one. (laughs) 
The other issue with Rosa's trial is the way our justice system works. Prosecutors are funded by taxpayers, and politicians control those purse strings. If a case is deemed high priority, resources are freed up for it. It's not a limitless budget, but when you compare it to what's available for public defenders, it might as well be. So to attempt to balance things between rich and poor people, the law makes an effort to help, quote, indigent people, which is just a fancy way to say someone's poor. The law gives those who can't afford a lawyer a lawyer, but that doesn't always mean the best lawyer or a lawyer who has the time. There are great public defenders out there, but appointed defense lawyers are often overworked, juggling dozens, even hundreds of cases at a time. A recent New York Times article profiled one public defense lawyer in Louisiana who had 194 felony cases at one time. The Times reported he was doing the work of five full-time lawyers to serve all of his clients, a few of whom were facing life without parole. You can imagine how many cases did not get the attention that they needed. And then when it comes to experts needed to testify at trial, those experts aren't free. They need to be paid. The defense has to ask the judge for money to hire an expert. And if the judge says, okay, the defense then has to find an expert willing to testify for whatever rate the judge has stipulated, often pretty low because, again, the defense doesn't have as big of a budget as the prosecution. In Rosa's case, her lawyer only had the resources to hire one expert who wasn't experienced in pediatrics or choking, and at one point, he got belligerent on the stand. Here's Vanessa Potkin again, Rosa's current lawyer. Unfortunately, you know, there is a big imbalance in this country, you know, when somebody who is indigent is standing trial and the resources that are available to the government in prosecuting the case, you know, in many instances, just far out, out, you know, far exceed what is available to an accused person standing trial. And Ms. Jimenez had a court-appointed attorney. She um, was represented by somebody who did not consult with appropriate experts. Um, the expert that he did retain um, was just, um, you know, completely inadequate and unprofessional and deconvoluted on the stand and told the, the prosecutors they could go fuck themselves. And just, you know, even if he hadn't um, deconvoluted on the stand, he did not possess the requisite experience and expertise to be weighing in on this issue. The prosecution, on the other hand, had a list of experts and witnesses whom testified against Rosa. And with those resources, they won. When they say 99 years, like, I lost, like, I feel like I lost everything. Like, I don't know. Like, in that moment, I was asking God, what are you doing? You know, because my whole thing was like, I know when I go to trial, they're going to see the truth, and they're going to let me go home. But then, they, it didn't happen. They didn't see that. After Rosa was convicted, her family, who testified as character witnesses, all went back to Mexico, where they've been ever since. Rosa says she can only communicate with them through letters because she can't make international calls and they can't come visit her. She hasn't seen her mom in 15 years. 
Rosa is at Mountain View Maximum Security Prison for Women, located in Gatesville, Texas, halfway between Austin and Dallas. And besides not being able to see her family or even speak to them on the phone, being undocumented has presented even more challenges compared to the rest of the women at Mountain View. Like, I cannot go to school because I'm not, I don't have, I'm not legal. I cannot, uh, like, I have filed to go to college for years. And it's always been denied. So instead, like I mentioned, she taught herself English almost right away and joined a work program where she learned Braille. When she gets out, she wants to continue working in Braille, but in Mexico, back with her family. I have a bunch of ideas. I was thinking maybe to go to restaurants in Mexico and uh, have menus for them in Braille. Or maybe I was thinking to have like, a, you know how they have the homework parts? Maybe do some home, like some cards for the blind for uh, birthdays and, you know, special occasions because they cannot see but they can touch it. But top priority for Rosa right now is her stage four kidney disease and getting out of prison for a transplant. This is an urgent issue, Vanessa says. People with stage four kidney disease are usually immunocompromised and they are 60% more susceptible to viral diseases like COVID-19. Rosa's kidney problems started right when she got to prison. When I got here in 2005 in prison, you know, they put me to work in the fields. Rosa went to work in the fields. She says walking miles a day, cutting grass and picking vegetables like onions and tomatoes. All kind of vegetables. So while we do that, I used to have to walk a lot. So I noticed that I was having a, a sharp pain in my hip. So I kept complaining and complaining to the doctors about the sharp pain that I had. But back then, the doctors didn't want to help us. They every time that you go to the doctor, they they tell you that you were lazy and that you didn't want to work. So finally, years later, I find a doctor that did an X-ray in my hip and they say that I have um, sclerosis. So he prescribed naproxen and ibuprofen for the pain. And because of my ignorance, I didn't research what this medication can do to you. So before I go to work, I used to just take one pill, then come back from work, take another pill because I'm already hurting, so I want to go to sleep. And that was my routine. Sometimes I didn't eat nothing in the morning, and I take a pill with an empty stomach. Rosa says years go by with this routine, and she gets some blood work done, and the damage the painkillers did to her was revealed. She's diagnosed with kidney failure. And he said that it was not, the way he explained it to me, he said it's not just one kidney, it's both of them. It's like if they wouldn't, somebody would have my kidneys and drop them in a boil, a pan of boiled water, and then take them out. So my kidneys are full of uh, scar tissue all around it. They cannot do anything to uh, take that scar tissue, it's no medication. It's nothing that can give me to better my kidney. Rosa asked the doctor if she could get a transplant. You will be at the least, but you will never reach the top. You are the lower of the society. He told her people in prison are at the bottom of the list. And with the time she has, 99 years, she'll never get a transplant. He told me that um, the only thing they can do for me is use... Um, 
go through the process, and then eventually... You have one minute left. Eventually, when my kidneys drop, um, they have to take me to another unit where they do dialysis, and then after that, that will be it. Dialysis is basically a blood cleaning process. Blood is pulled from the body, run through a machine to take out toxins and waste, and then put back in the body. Most people who do it need it a few times a week. And it's for people whose kidneys stopped working, but who don't have a donor yet. As Rosa's doctor told her, people can't live like that forever. He said a person can only live with dialysis for 10 years. But things for Rosa haven't been all bad. In 2007, shortly after she was convicted, a Mexican filmmaker made an award-winning documentary about her case. Mi Vida Dentro, or My Life Inside, caught the attention of then-Mexican president Enrique Peña Nieto, who helped fund better representation for Rosa, and that's when the Innocence Project got involved. Now with better funding, Rosa's lawyers were finally able to hire the experts she should have had at her first trial to counter the state's theory. In 2010, her lawyers brought to court several nationally recognized experts who disagreed with the prosecution's experts. Here's Vanessa again. You know, we independently had, you know, the top experts review the case and unanimously, each of them separately came to the conclusion that the medical evidence supported that this was accidental. In the original trial, two things the prosecution's experts testified to specifically helped convict Rosa. One, they said that the gag reflex would have forced the paper towels out of Brian's throat, which would imply that Rosa held him down and forced the towels in. Two, they said Rosa did not act immediately to get help. Instead, she cleaned up first, leaving Brian without air for about 40 minutes. They based this on his blood gas level, which detects the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the blood as a measure of lung function. So now, the new experts refute both of these claims. First, they said the gag reflex works in two ways, to push items out and help pull them in. The gag reflex in this case would have pulled the wad into his throat in an attempt to swallow the obstruction. And I can say, I've choked before, and my reflex was to try and swallow the object. They also said that in order to tell blood gas levels, much more information was needed for Brian, like his metabolism, and that wasn't available. The new experts say that based on the brain damage, it's more likely he had been without air for 10 minutes, closer to the amount of time it took Rosa to try and help Brian and run to the neighbors for help. They were pretty shocked and horrified that somebody had been convicted based on the erroneous testimony that happened in this case. And they were, you know, couldn't believe that Ms. Jimenez had been in prison for 17 years for something that was an accident. After the 2010 hearing, in the years that followed, five judges, including the original trial judge, expressed concern about the integrity of Rosa's first trial. They said they had serious doubts about the guilty verdict. Rosa was awarded a new trial on multiple occasions over the last decade, but each time the state argued the decision. Finally, 
This year, a federal judge gave the Texas Attorney General's office a deadline of February 25th to retry Rosa or set her free. Even the new district attorney, Margaret Moore, says the trial was flawed. But the attorney general, Republican Ken Paxton's office, is still fighting to keep the conviction. And so right now she's been living in a limbo as, you know, COVID-19 has taken the nation by the storm. Um, you know, she's at a real danger of contracting COVID-19, you know, if, if, if and when she's exposed, it's only a matter of time, and also of having serious health complications, including, you know, hospitalization and a greater likelihood of death given her immunocompromised status. Rosa is not eligible for parole until 2023. She wonders about her life and what happened to it. In 2010, five years after she was incarcerated, her husband and the father of her children disappeared. No one has seen or heard from him since. Do you think that if you didn't go to prison, you guys would still be together? Yeah, sometimes I wonder. Yeah. What else do you wonder about? Like, uh... I don't know, like, we were happy together, I believe that, but then I wonder, like, maybe he was not the man for me, and maybe he was going to leave anyway, you know? Yeah. When you get out, is that something that you'd be looking for, like, a relationship and, and someone to be with? Oh, not right now. Like, it's not in my head. Like, that's <laughs> one of the last things I want. Yeah. Instead, she thinks about the simple things in life. Like cooking. Cooking, yes. I love cooking and I really miss it, you know? Yeah. I hear it. We have the same meal over and over. You know, it's like, I think they have a menu for like a whole month and then the next month is the same menu. So can you imagine eating the same thing for like 15 years over and over and over? <sighs> What's like one of the first things you want to eat? I don't know, but it will be something Mexican because I love Mexican food. Mainly, she thinks about her conviction and why she's still dying inside. Well, this is what I believe, honestly. The only reason I'm still here is because I'm a Mexican. And it sounds really ugly, but this is what I believe now. Because other people in my situation, they wouldn't let them out with the first judge telling them, hey, this is a mistake. But this is the poor judge they have to stay on my side and say, hey, this woman is innocent. This woman is innocent. And and I'm still here. But if it were somebody else, I believe they wouldn't be out. Rosa's attorneys are working to get Attorney General Ken Paxson's office to release Rosa or give her a new trial, as the judge ordered. In 2015, Paxton himself was indicted on criminal charges for felony securities fraud, yet he was re-elected in 2018 for another four-year term. His trial is still pending, and if he's found guilty, the first-degree felonies carry a maximum of 99 years in prison. But... Even though he's facing criminal charges himself, he's still fighting to keep Rosa in prison. Paxton is asking an appeals court to block the new trial that has been ordered, 
and as long as the case is tied up in appeal, a new trial cannot be scheduled. Paxton's office says they worry that transporting her to a jail to await a new trial could leave her vulnerable to immigration and customs enforcement, who they believe would detain and deport Rosa back to Mexico before they had a chance to retry her. But Vanessa and the rest of Rosa's legal team refute this, and they've asked the new judge in her case to allow Rosa to leave prison on bond for the sake of her health, while the appeal continues, a process which could take years. But Paxton has asked the judge to deny her bond. I reached out to his office asking why he is fighting to uphold her conviction and deny her bond, but I haven't heard back. Paxton is up for re-election in a couple of years. In the meantime, Rosa tells me her kidneys are getting worse. How was your doctor's appointment? Oh, it was not good. They told me my kidneys are getting worse. Uh. They told me that they want to prepare me for dialysis next next month. Wow. So I was hoping that wasn't one of those. You know, one of those people like, oh, I'm going to stay in a stage four, maybe my whole life. You know? But then when he says that my kidneys are bad and they're getting worse and I don't know like when he when he told me that I was I just was like crying you know because I don't want to die in here you know Once she starts dialysis, she'll have to leave Mountain View, which she likes. She has friends and, of course, the Braille program. The new prison is closer to the hospital where she'll be treated three times a week, but she won't have her friends and she won't have Braille. If you want to help Rosa, please go to freerosa.org, where you can find a Take Action tab with ways to contact Texas representatives and sign the petition to release Rosa and let her go back to her family in Mexico. You can also find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you like this show, please, please, please rate and review. It takes two seconds. And the more people that do this, the more attention and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at unjustunsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. Dot com.